Morning. My name is Spencer. I am one of the pastors here. Uh, so we did Palm Sunday. We paused to take a break from Exodus so we could be in the Holy Week. We did Palm Sunday. Uh, then we did Good Friday. We had Easter last week. And before we jump back into Exodus, we want to look at the Ascension. Uh, we're going to look at the Ascension this morning, which is in Acts uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. You can go uh, turn your blue Bibles to page 530. You can also follow along on the screen uh, this morning. My, one of my best friends growing up had consistently one of the worst birthdays. And the reason why is because his birthday was on December 26th, which meant every single year his birthday was overshadowed by Jesus' birthday. Every year. Now, I think his parents possibly tried early on to make it special. They gave up early. Because all my memories of growing up with him is that we do like Christmas at their, uh, at, um, uh, the day after Christmas at their house because they're close family friends. And it would be Christmas. It would be celebrating gifts and all the things. And then, oh yeah, it's your birthday, Clark. Uh, here's a piece of cake in your, in your present. Like every single year he just got overshadowed, overlooked because Christmas is really big. And it would overshadow your birthday if you had that birthday. That's how I feel the ascension gets treated. The ascension is a big event, but it comes right after Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. And those are really big deals. Our whole faith is built upon these two big events. And then the ascension happens, and it's like, ha, ah, neat, huzzah. Like it's just, it, it doesn't get a lot of love. I love how one theologian describes it, Michael Horton. He says, some treat the ascension as little more than a dazzling exclamation point. For the resurrection rather than a new event in its own right. It just kind of gets, he's, he's risen and he ascended. Yay. And the early church didn't treat it that way. The Bible doesn't treat it that way. The early church uh, in one of the most binding creeds of Christian faith, the Apostles' Creed. In the Apostles' Creed it says he ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Or the living, the dead, depending on which tradition you might have grown up in. But it's this idea that he ascended and he sits at the right hand of God. That's a big part of the work of Jesus that often gets overlooked. So this morning I wanted to pause before we jump back into Exodus and not overlook ascension. Let's take a look at this and see why it's actually a wonderful work of God. And then we're, we're going to quickly work through the text and then there are six different things I want us to see. I want to see three unique aspects of the work of Christ that are directly tied to the ascension. And once we've seen those three works that are directly tied to the ascension, then I want to see how the ascension impacts three different parts of your daily faith. So I don't know if you caught that. That's six. So we've got some work to do. So let me pray, and then we'll jump into this so that we can behold our God in this wonderful work of ascension. Heavenly Father, I, I pray that you would help us be present this morning, that you would open up our hearts to receive your word with glad and generous hearts. We would respond uh, joyfully, worshiping you by faith, repenting where we need to repent, turning to you and delighting in you because you are worthy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so in Acts 1, this is right after Jesus resurrected, spent 40 days with the disciples, teaching them, getting them ready for uh, this next part, the beginning of the church, 
And then right before he ascends, this is what we pick up in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So they say, is it happening? Is the end happening? And Jesus is like, mind your business. It's just I've told you this in Mark 13, Matthew 24, you're not going to know the times, get over it. And he focuses them towards what really matters in verse 8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So he centers them on what he's been teaching them the last 40 days. There are multiple commissions where Jesus is commissioning them to go and make disciples. We're most familiar with the Great Commission in Matthew. We have this final one here where he says, the Holy Spirit is going to descend upon you. That's the birth of the church. And then from there, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, where this is going to begin. In Judea, the region. Past Judea into Samaria, where the Gentiles are, where those who don't know me yet are. And to the ends of the earth. This mission is going forth. This is the final words of Jesus before he leaves this earth. And then the ascension, verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. So the resurrected Christ in all of his glory ascends. He floats into heaven. And just watching Jesus rise up until the clouds, he passes through, and he's gone. That's how Jesus leaves this world. And they're looking up and marveling at what just happened. And then all of a sudden, verse 10, And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So it's two men in white clothes. That's angels. That's what we saw in, if you read the end of the resurrection accounts on resurrection morning. It's the same description. And they look at the disciples and they say, what are you doing? Looking into heaven. To which if I was them, I'd say, I'm looking into heaven. Because what I just saw was awesome. I don't know if you should respond like that to angels and their power, but I just, did you see what just happened? Our, the resurrected Christ in his glory just floated into heaven. Of course I'm looking up there. I don't want to stop looking up there. This is an amazing event. And they're like, let's go. You got, it's time to work. I mean, they're just on to the next thing. Because they need to go to Jerusalem where they're going to await the Holy Spirit to descend upon them. That happens in Acts 2 at Pentecost. And then in Peter's first sermon at Pentecost Sunday, when he's, the Holy Spirit descends upon the church, they go out and start sharing the gospel. Then Peter starts preaching a sermon, and there's all types of people who are listening. And he preaches this sermon, and if you're familiar with it, there may be one part of it that you just skip over and don't realize. As he's preaching a sermon in Acts 2, verses 32 and 33, he says, This Jesus God raised up, that's resurrection. 
and of all that we are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. That exalted at the right hand of God, that's ascension. Jesus ascended into heaven to the right hand of God. So he's, he's mentioning the ascension. This gets further mentioned in Acts 7 when Stephen, one of the followers of Jesus, is defending his faith before the religious leaders. He's basically preaching the gospel, and they're listening, and they're getting angry. But what really sends them over the edge is this in Acts 7, 56 to 58. It says, and he said, behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So in the middle of this sermon, they're getting angry, and he looks up, and he miraculously sees Jesus at the right hand of God, and he just says, I see, and they lose their minds. It says, verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, murdered him, martyred him. That he sees this and they lose it. They, ah, they, just, they run at him, they grab him, they drag him to the city and they pelt his body with rocks until he is dead. And that's because of what he just claimed, what he just saw. I mean, that's direct fulfillment of Psalm 110. When Psalm 110 is foreseeing all of this, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is the Messiah. This is the, the foretelling of the Messiah, and it's foretelling what Jesus did. He ascended into heaven at the right hand of God, where he now sits in authority. So his enemies, they're under his footstool, they're under his feet. The work of evil is being crushed, and they kill him for it. You're going to see this language, seated at the right hand of God, at the right hand of God. You're going to see he passed through the heavens. You're going to read this in different parts of the New Testament, and you need to realize that is the ascension. That language goes back to Acts 1 and the ascension, which means you can't read Acts 1, 6 through 11 and go, neat, nice exit moving on. You can't do that. It's more than this. One pastor put it this way. He said, if we simply collapse the ascension into the resurrection, we miss stunning benefits tied directly to Jesus being taken into heaven. But if you just bypass this and just lump it in with the resurrection and move on, you're going to miss some of the incredible, uh, stunning benefits that come with the ascension that you see throughout the New Testament. And that's what I want to point out first. I first want to point out there are three unique works of Christ that are tied to the ascension. If you're, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, these, some of these are going to sound very familiar. But we don't think of them as being connected to the ascension, but they very much are. And the first work is atonement. It is atonement. Atonement meaning his blood has covered us and our sins and speaks for us and stands for us. His atonement. Hebrews 10 connects this idea. In Hebrews 10, verse 11, it begins, And every priest stands at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So the author of Hebrews is describing the Jewish sacrificial system. Where they would offer these sacrifices, bulls and lambs and all these animals, over and over again. And he's saying, that never takes away sin. Sin. And then it goes on to saying 
Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, meaning his atoning death on the cross, when his death on the cross fulfills this system of sacrifices, because he sat down at the right hand of God. That's his ascension. He ascended to the right hand of God. When he completed his work on the cross, he ascended to the right hand of God, waiting, verse 13, from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. That's the same language as Psalm 110. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That right there. That's what we celebrated last week. Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. And in all of that, the work indeed is finished. The work is finished. But that doesn't mean that that finished work of Christ, it has not been taken yet to who it needs to be taken to. So while it's finished, it has not been delivered. And that cannot happen until ascension happens. The work of Christ cannot be extended to the nations who have not heard about him until he leaves this earth, until he ascends on high to the right hand of God, where he now stands in power with God the Father, ruling and reigning his atoning work, directing his atoning work. That's, what, that's one of the parts of this that we miss, is this, as he's ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God the Father, he is in perfect uh, union with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, directing His atoning work across the world. And that's wonderful news. That means that Jesus now stands in the heavens. And He's plotting. And He's moving. And in conversation with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, our one true God is looking at a kid in Kid City, a seven-year-old, and she's getting it. She's hearing the gospel right now. And her parents have been walking her through the gospel at home. They've been reading storybook Bibles to her. They've been helping memorize scripture together. Been praying together as a family. Been listening to worship songs in the car. And she's getting it. It's starting to click. That's what Jesus is doing right now. In the, at the right hand of the Father, he's working. He's looking at in Lebanon and Sudan where people who've never heard the gospel. And he's plotting. And he's moving. Because his atoning work is being directed from heaven on high by the power of the Holy Spirit across this world. How wonderful is that? And that's because he ascended. It's because he left. He ascended on high. The Holy Spirit came down. And his atoning work is moving. Second work is intercession. Intercession. So, interceding is just man in the middle. Someone who's interceding on our behalf. The book of Hebrews begins in 1-3 by saying, after making purifications for sins, so after his atoning work, he sat down, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's ascension language. That's going to get brought back up. We just saw it in, in chapter 10. But it also gets brought back up in chapter 4. The very reading that we had this morning, verses 14 and following, says, since then we have a great high priest, who has passed through the heavens. If you're familiar with this passage, you've probably read it a dozen times. And you probably pass over this every time. I know I do. Just because you're getting to the good stuff that's coming next. 
but don't miss that. It says, who passed through the heavens? That's ascension. He doesn't become our great high priest if he doesn't ascend to that position in the first place. So when he ascends into heaven, he becomes our great high priest. And this is the benefits that we see. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Everything that we value about Jesus being our high priest that are in, it's in those verses. The fact that we have a sympathetic Savior who has been in our shoes. He, he was human. And he knows what it's like to endure temptation. He knows what it's like to endure suffering. He's been in our shoes. And we don't have an unsympathetic God. We have one who sympathized with us in our weaknesses and is now our great high priest in heaven. And we get to boldly enter into the throne room of God through prayer. We get to boldly have access to our God through our great high priest because of what he's done for us. So much of the wonderful message of the gospel that we celebrate because of this passage is because he ascended there. It's because he ascended to become our great high priest. And now, and now we have access. And that access is wonderful. The biblical kings of old even some of the surrounding kings of the time. Uh, those kings also served as judges. And they, you know, they had lower courts where judges were, make, were made, but every now and then, maybe once in a lifetime, if you had a problem, if you had a, a judgment that you needed the king to weigh in on, you would have an audience with the king. That he would listen to what you had to say. He would listen to your problem and the, the, the day that you finally got to come before the king in his throne room, and you got to bring this problem. You had the king of all of your land, of all of your people. You had his ear. He would listen to your problem. How honored it would have been to finally be able to bring that before him so he would weigh in on it, so that he would give judgment to it. We have that and then some. We have the eternal king who rules over all creation. We get to have access to him all the time. We can go to him with anything, and we have his ear, and he listens to us. We can go to him with anything we're facing, sickness, disease, sin, struggle, facing off the powers of evil in this world, hurt, Suffering, loss, betrayal, anxiety, depression, the very things that are plaguing our souls. We get to bring that to him any day, any hour, all the time. We have access to the God of the universe, the high king of heaven, our great high priest. That's why Martin Luther, in that hymn that we sang earlier, before the throne of God above, that's why he says, when, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, when Satan is tempting, when he's, when he's uh, tempting me to just be further in despair because of my sin, and he's reminding me of the guilt in my life, he says, upward I look and see him there, who made an end for all my sin. He looks up. And our great high priest is there in prayer, 
to receive and remind us of who he is and to answer our prayers. We have access. And it's not just that we have access, which is just wonderful in itself. It's we have, we have, a, we have an, uh, a, an advocate for us, an advocate who advocates for us. I mean, that's what 1 John is getting at in 2.1. It says, 1 John 2.1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you, might, that you may not sin. So don't, he's, I'm writing you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. But we do have, we do sin. We, but Jesus is up there advocating for us. How wonderful is that? That's what Romans 8 is getting at in Romans 8, 34. It says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. That's ascension language, right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. How good is that, that you have a God who's advocating for you, interceding for you, even, listen, even when you don't want to. If you're in Christ, even if you don't feel like you can, have you ever felt so low, so sad, so maybe so dirty, so wretched, so vile, so unwanted, so unloved, that you didn't have the words to pray? Or even just God doesn't, what would he possibly want to do? I'm so, like, I, I, I can't even speak to God right now. You ever had that feeling? Maybe just me? I know it's not just me. If you belong to Jesus, when you stop praying, someone's still praying for you. Someone's still advocating for you. Someone's still interceding for you. How good is that? I mean, listen, you, have you ever been in a situation at work where you've made a mistake and you have a supervisor that luckily is going to go to the bat, he's going to go to bat for you, and they go to the head honcho and they say, listen, he's, he's, he shows up to work on time, he, he, he's, he's done good work, I know he made a mistake. He's advocating for you. And the good news of the gospel is that your record and my record stinks. We deserve to be fired. <laughs> but we don't point to our record. And more importantly, God doesn't. If you believe in Jesus, he points to the perfect righteousness of Christ and his record on our behalf. And he's advocating based on that record. He's advocating based on that he loves you because of his great love for you. And we need that. I mean, can you imagine it's just good. I mean, just that your Trinity in conversation with himself saying, listen, she messed up. He sinned. Made horrible mistake. But we love him. We love him. And, and, and she can't, she's not, she's not praying right now. She's not believing the gospel right now. She doesn't feel like she can come to us. So I'm sending somebody from the group this week at the group meeting time going to be reminded that even in her worst moments, she can still pray. Even, even in his worst moments, he can come to God in prayer. That's our God. He advocates. He intercedes for us. How wonderful is that? I don't, I don't have the time. i got to keep going. Okay. That's, that, you, there's so much that can be said on intercession, but we got to keep going. Okay. Third unique work of Christ that's tied to his ascension is his kingship. It's his kingship. When Jesus ascends to the right hand of God, that lang very language of right hand of God, that's the language of kings. That's the language of rulers. Jesus is the king. He's not just our high priest. He is our king, and he rules, and he reigns from on high. 
Ephesians 1 says, speaking of God the Father, it says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and, listen, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus ascends to the throne to be king. His kingship officially begins when he ascends and takes the throne. And from this time forth and forevermore, he is the king. Psalm 2 was predicting this. Psalm 2 was prophesying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Verse 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That's God the Father saying, I'm going to bestow this on Christ the Son. And then Paul celebrates this in 1 Timothy, he who is blessed, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. This is our God. He is the king from now forevermore. The implications of that are vast. There's many. I'll just give you one implication, okay? If he's the king, that means that if you belong to Christ and he is your king, you don't have to fear anymore. You don't have to be fearful. I was at my niece's uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe community theater production a few weeks back. Community theater is awesome for so many reasons. They did a good job, though, and, I, and I, I appreciated one of the things they captured in uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is that when the White Witch is in power, all the little creatures are fearful. They're all scared. They're all, they're just, they're timid. They're looking around. It's, it's like, where are spies? The moment they realize that Aslan is on the move, the moment they realize that Aslan is back, the fear begins to subside. They begin to grow in courage. And then when they see Aslan with their eyes, they're just, they're ready. They're not scared of the witch anymore. I don't want to spoil it for you, but that's an allegory. Behind <laughs> the witch in the wardrobe is about Jesus. That when Jesus is on the throne, you don't have to be scared anymore. You don't have to be fearful anymore. You don't have to be driven and enslaved to anxiety or fear. Because he's on the throne, you guys. Because he's the king. Because he rules over all creation and the universe. And the enemy is his footstool. His band of the, the, Satan and his band of demons. I mean, his, his, his foot is on, is crushing. It's crushing. Just as, as uh, Genesis 3 predicted, that the head would crush the serpent. Jesus' foot would crush his head. That's happening. Because he's the sovereign king over all things. And he rules now into eternity. Which means, listen, 10 million years from now. Okay, 10 million years from now, you will not be one day closer to the end of his reign. And if you belong to Christ, it is a wonderful reign that you are in. A lot can be said for his kingship, but that is tied to his ascension. Now, those are three unique works of Christ that we don't think about that are tied to the ascension. I want to look at three different ways the ascension impacts our daily faith. The first is holiness, is holiness. I'm going to read Colossians 3, and this is going to show up in all three of these. I'm just going to sit in this passage. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek 
the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That's ascension language. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I want to focus on that first part. If you've been raised with Christ, who is above, set your mind on things that are above. A lot of times when we think about uh, the term Christ-likeness, being like Jesus, what would Jesus be? All right? We think about Christ-likeness, we think about it in terms of how he lived. And that's true, but it's incomplete. It's not just how he lived and how we read his life in the Gospels. It's where he also is now. That our minds should be where Christ is now. That he's perfect in glory and holiness now in heaven. That our minds should be looking up. And our and our. And our Life should be geared towards heaven. That our minds are just, are, are, that's why he goes on to in the following verses in Colossians to say, put to death, put, put off what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, anger, wrath, malice, all these things. He says, put on as God's uh, uh, chosen, compassionate hearts, meekness, kindness. You do these things because you're looking up. Because holiness comes from Christ and our mind is there consumed upward where he is now. And if our minds are, are, are focused on the ascendant, holy, glorious Christ, it affects how you live on this earth so much so that you aren't falling in love with this earth. Because the problem for us is that we don't look up, that we look around and we just love the world. And you can't love the world and love Christ. They're incompatible. Richard Baxter, who's a Puritan pastor from hundreds of years ago, he said this, and I thought it was so helpful. He said, there's a great deal of difference between the desires of heaven and a sanctified man, he's talking about a Christian, and an unsanctified. The believer prizes it above earth and had rather be with God than here. And he goes on to say, but to the ungodly, Nothing seems more desirable than this world. And therefore, he only chooses heaven before hell, but not before earth. And therefore shall not have it it upon such a choice. And what he's getting at is, and we very much feel this, is that everybody wants to go to heaven. If you've ever asked anyone, do you want to go to heaven? They say no. Everyone wants to go to heaven. But we don't love, we're not so upward-minded that we love Jesus and where he is in heaven above earth. Because what we really, we, we might love heaven over hell, but we don't love earth over heaven. We don't love heaven over earth. And we get so, we fall in love with the things of this world. And if you fall in love with this world, you, you don't get heaven. You don't get Christ. And he's picking our gaze up and saying, look here. Pursue holiness. Not so that you might be justified. You, listen, if you believe in Christ, his perfect work stands for you. But once you're in Christ, he says, look upward. Set your mind here. Ascension brings our mind to that because it reminds us of where Christ is now. And that living like Jesus is not just how he lived in the Gospels, but where he is now. Second, 
The second way the ascension impacts our daily faith is mission. Is mission. Verse 2 says, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Now, the direct context of that is talking about holiness in chapter 3. But this continues in the chapter 4. In chapter 4, he makes the appeal for them to pray for him so that he can declare the mystery of Christ to those who need it. Because Paul's concerned with those who don't know Christ, who need the gospel. And you can't miss that. The ascension and the event of the ascension in Acts 1 happens right after his final words, which is a commission to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. The ascension reminds us that Jesus is on the throne. And his orders are go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That we need to hear his orders, knowing that he's in control, knowing that he's a sovereign king, and do them. Not, not timidly, but boldly. I've been into... Uh, World War II recently was watching World War II documentaries on Netflix because um, I'm in my 30s and that's what you do. You start getting into World War II. And so it is. So I'm watching and I, I always understood uh, D-Day as the, the event of D-Day and the storming of Normandy. I always understood that as like just a certainty that we were going to win that battle. For some reason I just Historically, I was like, yeah, well, of course we're going to win D-Day. I don't know if it's because I'm American and we're just awesome and of course we're going to win. Or if I was just taught incorrectly. I don't know. But I always just thought that D-Day was a certainty. You know what I learned from Netflix? It wasn't. It was not a certainty at all. That so many things had to fall into place. So many things had to fall into place. I mean, from the, the, the weather in, in northern western Europe had to be good weather, which is not normal up there. It had to be good weather because if the, if the ocean would have been storm-ridden, it just, all these, they've been sitting ducks. They just would have been picked off one by one. I didn't know that the Nazi Germany had built this tired western defense all literally across western Europe. There was, there was guns mounted. They were ready for anyone that would invade. I didn't know that they very much knew that D-Day was going to happen right then. I didn't know that, that literally... They thought it was going to happen farther north, and the reason why is because right across the English Channel in, in England, they, they had set up inflatable tanks and inflatable armored cars to, to deceive them, with, and they used different intelligence to make them think they were going there, because if Nazi Germany would have put all their forces on the beaches of Normandy, it would have been done. I mean, it, there's only one group of people that tried that, and that was the Canadians the year before, and of course they lost, because they're Canadian. Um, they needed us and we all went and we won so I thought it was a certainty and it was not in the morning of D-Day everyone was very nervous from high command on down and it wasn't just because of the amount of people that were going to die it's because they didn't know if it was going to work it felt 50-50 but they went anyways and we have certainty it is not 50-50 for us the king has given us marching orders to go and make disciples of all nations. His gospel, hear this, his gospel is going to spread everywhere. Everywhere. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue. Ben Johnson right now is in Sudan because the gospel is needed in Sudan. Desperately needed in Sudan. 
And it's going to spread everywhere. There's certainty in this. We boldly get to hear our king and go forth and deliver the gospel. Boldly. And that is because he ascended on high. And he sits at the right hand of God the Father. And they're in control of this mission. His ascendant, the ascendant Christ empowers us and emboldens us for mission. Last. The third way it daily impacts our faith is hope. It's hope. Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We will go and take the gospel. Every tribe and every nation and every tongue. And when it, at, at the right time, he's coming back. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also appear with him in glory. The ascension reminds us that he is coming back. That he will return to this earth. So the angels were telling the disciples in Acts, they said, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. That he's coming back, and he's coming back on the clouds, and he will return. You can bank your hope on that. And when he comes, listen, when he comes, as we long and await just a little longer, brothers and sisters, as we wait a little longer for his return, when that day comes, you will not need atonement anymore. If you belong to Christ, you will be made completely and wholly new. You will no longer need intercession. Because when he makes all things new, we will be with him. In the new heavens, the new earth for eternity. And you will no longer need an intercession. But when he comes, we will sit under the reign of our glorious, wonderful king. A reign that will not end. Forever and ever and ever. But when he comes... We will be perfectly holy as he is holy, as he's made us new and glorious for the bodily resurrection. When he comes, the mission will finally and fully be complete, and he is coming. He absolutely is coming, and our hope is in that. So, brothers and sisters, we get to, because he ascended, hold on. Hold on a little longer, because he is coming, and that hope is absolutely sure and secure. The band's going to come up. And we're going to take the Lord's Supper, which is a meal both of remembrance but also expectation. It is a meal that reminds us that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that was broken for you. Then the, uh, he took the cup of the new covenant. He said, this is my blood that was shed for you. That as often as you eat and drink this, you proclaim my death, that's the cross, until I return. That's his coming. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that Jesus paid for our sins. And we get to boldly come to the table as we boldly get to come to the throne room of God because of what Christ has done and nothing that we've done. We put all of our hope and all of our faith completely in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. But it's a meal of, of, of foreshadowing, knowing that one day He is coming back. And there will be a final wedding feast. There will be a day sin will be no more, when suffering will be no more, will be no more. we look forward to that glorious day. That is our hope.
So if you're a Christian, please come to the table. There's gluten-free in that back corner over there. When you are ready, come to the table joyfully because the High King ascended for us. If you are not a Christian, please hear me. Don't come to the table. If you've not trusted in Jesus as your only hope, don't come to the table. Come to Christ right now. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father and He's waiting for you. Believe. And my hope this morning is that you would. That you would not come to the table, but you would pray and you ask and believe in the name of Jesus. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us remember how wonderful the work of ascension is and what it means for us as Christians now celebrate the good news of the gospel that is true because of life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And I pray that if anyone is here that has never fully trusted you with all of their hope, they would find their hope solely in you right now. We ask in Jesus' name.